everyone to worship with us at the Dover Church of Christ. It's so good to be back with you this morning. Uh, we were out last week. We got to kind of sneak into the Sunday night service, but uh, I heard very good things about uh, Mr. Walker Howell and how he filled in uh, last week. It's also good to see so many of you. We have a few visitors. Uh, my mom is staying with us this week, helping with the newborn, obviously. But it's also good to just see some faces we haven't seen in a while. It's good to see David and Jeanette back with us. It's good to see Trenton and Macy and their new baby boy with us, of course. And I, I want to say something. I almost told Jeff to put this with the birthdays, but last weekend, I wasn't here obviously, but last weekend my grandmother turned 80 years old and they had a, a big uh, thing with all our family and everybody there at the church. And I know she always, she's not a member of our congregation, but I know she religiously listens uh, online and comments on the Facebook videos. And so I wanted to make sure she knew I told her happy birthday because uh, the truth is I would probably, I certainly would not be in ministry without her spiritual influence in my life. So uh, I'm very, very grateful for that. So um, last Wednesday, last Wednesday, we got to uh, be here and I actually got to do something kind of fun. I got to sit in on Luke's little Bible class. It wasn't really his class. They had a couple teachers were out the arena range and he was kind of with the four to six year olds, I think. And and Christy was reading the story about Jesus calming the storm. And, you know, they get to the point where he, he stands up and he says, peace, be still. And she, so she'd tell the kids, and the kids would say, they'd say, peace, be still. And I love that scene because it's, it's just so simple at, at its core. You know, the, the fishermen, they would cross the Sea of Galilee, kind of like you and I would go to Walmart, right? They, I'm over here. I need something over there. So I, I got to get there. We have to do that. It was just a normal course of life, a journey they made hundreds of times. But, but in that time, something unexpected happens, something terrible. This, this unruly storm kind of takes over the boat, and so they're all freaking out, and they wake Jesus up, probably not expecting him to save the day, but really just to tell him, hey, you need to grab a bucket or grab a life jacket because we're going down. We're in trouble. And it's almost as if in the disciples' panic, they forgot who the guy sleeping in the boat with them was. And I think for a second in their panic and their nervousness and in their fear of the storm, they forgot that the guy sleeping on the bottom of the boat was not some hitchhiker they picked up on the way to Galilee. The guy sleeping in the bottom of the boat was the master and the creator of the universe. And if Jesus is on this boat, this boat ain't going down. And when I hear that story, and I heard the kids say, peace, be still, I think of maybe a grown-up version of the same expression now, the same idea, at least, is from Philippians 4, 6, something we've probably heard countless times as it relates to prayer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And that next verse says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. And so I love that idea, that, that, that prayer, by giving stuff to God in prayer, we have peace. If, if we just started this lesson a couple weeks ago called Looking for Direction, where we're studying the, the prayers of the Bible. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about how David prayed for a quieted soul in Psalm 128, that there's this peace that comes with communion with God. And I feel like in a lot of ways, Paul was saying the same thing. Jesus was saying the same thing, that when, when you're with Jesus, wherever he is, you're, you're good. You, you can be at peace, when we're appealing to the Lord and the master of the universe through prayer, we can actually be at peace. And so I think of the kids saying those words, and I, I like to imagine Jesus sort of looking out over the storms of my life and just saying, peace, be still. And just as the storms were stilled by giving in to Jesus' will, I think there's a peace in submitting to the will of God. 
If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. I tell us that story in the Bible class because I want us to think about peace. I want us to think about that phrase, peace be still, as we read about Jesus' prayer in the garden. Because Jesus' prayer in the garden was actually a prayer of submission, but I want us to think about peace in the act of submission because I, I don't really think peace is something we think about when we think of submission. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I think of submission, I think of a wrestling move, right, where somebody's tapping out. They're being forced into submission. But we think of submission as this thing you're being bent into, you're being shaped, you're being coerced. But in actuality, in the Bible, submission to God is actually peaceful. There is an inner peace that comes with submitting to the will of God in prayer. And so I want us just to kind of think about that idea as we study this passage this morning. Because Jesus' prayer in the garden in Luke 22 is certainly a prayer of submission. Because when Jesus starts his prayer, he is not at all at peace. He's looking for peace. He's troubled in his soul. The text will tell us that he's actually in so much sorrow that the great sweat drops of blood flow down. He's, he's distressed, but he's searching for peace. And so we're going to read from Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he told them, Pray that you will not enter into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, where he knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The passage says that angels there strengthened and ministered to him. It tells us about the great sweat drops of blood. And then when he, he rose and went to the disciples, he found them asleep. And he said, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. To me... Jesus' prayer in the garden here is, is one of the most powerful prayers in Scripture. It's awesome. We see the Savior, we see Jesus coming down in this position of submitting to God. Of acknowledging, not my will, but yours. And we're going to focus on that a little bit this morning. I think Jesus' prayer helps us understand him better. It helps us understand his humanness. It helps love him even more. Because it's such a simple prayer, but in actuality it is so, so deeply profound. We're going to look at the, the context and a little bit of the details because I think every little bit in this short passage really paints the scene of what's going on. The passage begins as usual or as was his custom, as was his habit. The previous chapter just over in Luke 21, Luke says that, that every day Jesus was teaching at the temple and then each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. That's from 21:37. And so Jesus has this this pattern, this spiritual rhythm, if you will, especially during the festival week, where he'd go up to the temple during the day, and then at night, when he was done teaching in the temple, he'd come out into this little olive grove where he would retreat by himself. He would come out of the city center, that, that busy sort of epicenter of everything going on in Jerusalem, and he would come out in the evening time. He would go across this area called the Kidron Valley. He would go into the base of this hill, and he would pray. And the Kidron Valley is this this shallow canyon just east of Jerusalem, it's actually a, a, probably a dry riverbed. It's a little ridge that rises up, and it rises up to this hill that runs along the east side of the city. And at the top of the hill, the top of the hill actually looks over the city of Jerusalem. And we know this mount, we know this hill, we know this area very well. It's all across Scripture in, in Jesus' ministry. Matthew and Mark call that, that olive grove at the bottom, they call it the Garden of Gethsemane, which comes from the Aramaic for a, a term for an olive press. 
just like you'd have a wine press or a grape press. Gethsemane just means an olive press. Luke calls it the Mount of Olives, and so we get this, this idea of the, the olive groves down here, and maybe some sort of estate, some sort of plantation, some sort of orchard that, that made oils. And like I said, we see this all the time. He, he fed the multitudes from atop this very hill. The disciples watched him ascend into heaven from on top of the hill. And Jesus, as we said, would often, not just during the festival, but often throughout his ministry, it says he would walk out of the city, east out of the city, through this little valley, and on this hill to pray, usually, usually in isolation. It would say something like he withdrew himself to pray. In this case... It says, the disciples followed him. And something I find funny about that phrasing is that the following of Jesus is actually precisely what made them disciples in the first place. If you've been a part of our church for a while, you know that when I preach, I preach very heavily this idea of discipleship. As a church, we certainly believe that the Bible teaches to be saved, you must hear the gospel, repent of sin, confess faith in Christ, be baptized for the remission of sins. But we don't believe that you do these acts to check a box or to sort of some sort of formality, but we, you do them as a process of becoming a disciple of Christ. That we seek salvation as, as a way of being obedient to Christ, to God's word. But ultimately, we, it doesn't stop there. We want to be followers of Jesus. We want to seek to learn all there is to imitating his life and his ministry. And so I often, in my preaching, I will emphasize a lifetime of obedience after baptism. Because the Bible doesn't call us to a spiritual one-time dalliance with Jesus, but a lifetime of discipleship. And the text tells us the disciples followed him. When we look at Jesus' ministry, the disciples followed him. When the crowds were hungry, when the crowds were praising him, when the crowds were extolling him. The disciples followed him when the guards came for his arrest. The disciples followed him when Jesus personally invites them into this, this very intimate moment. They followed him when he was healing the sick and raising the dead, but they also follow him here when his humanity is showing. When Jesus is facing temptation, when Jesus is facing deep turmoil and deep anguish, and Jesus is wrestling with the will of God. I love this passage because Jesus makes no attempt to lone wolf his ministry. And was there anyone better qualified to? He invites them in. He, he welcomes them in. He's a leader who allows his disciples to be close to him. He wants them to be close by, even if that openness allowed one to betray him. In spite of that, Jesus welcomes his disciples in with him. And he instructs us in this little lesson here. He instructs us to, to pray three things or in three ways. And he begins by saying, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus gives his disciples the same advice that, that he himself will shortly follow. That, that to pray in crisis, that temptation will not get the better of them. In this text, the, Jesus uses the common word for prayer, but the way he uses it is this way of sort of saying, uh, join me in prayer. It's this action that we do collectively, that he's, he's welcoming in, he's inviting them to, to share in the prayer with him. And so Jesus is praying against temptation, but he's, he's asking his disciples, will you Will you pray with me that you will not be tempted? He invites them to pray against the temptation they will face. And notice Jesus doesn't just encourage them not to be tempted, but he acknowledges that the temptation is real. We know in another place in the Bible that Jesus was taken out to the wilderness to be tempted. Temptation is a very real aspect of human life. 
And so Jesus doesn't say that to pray that you won't ever be tempted, but rather pray that you will not give in to the temptation. Some translations say don't enter into or that you might resist the temptation. So the first lesson is, well, how, how can we, how do the disciples and how can we resist temptation? Well, through prayer. It seems so simple, but again, it's so profound. The vital lesson of this, we can actively fight our temptations through prayer. By giving them to God in prayer. By asking God to strengthen us. By asking God to, to remove that desire in our hearts for whatever it is that tempts us. To, to draw us away from those things so that we might be closer to Him. The passage also gives us the detail that it says He, he withdrew and, and knelt down when He prayed. We got into this a little bit in our Bible class. But He draws His disciples in to be witnesses to this vulnerable moment. And when Jesus is alone, but kind of with an earshot, his posture is very different than we see Jesus anywhere else. When Jesus is up teaching, it's the Sermon on the Mount, not the Sermon in the Valley, right? He's on top and he's teaching, he's instructing them. When he was in the temple, he's, he's reading from the scriptures which are up front in the temple, and he's reading to the synagogue. When Jesus is teaching, Jesus is always the center of attention, and Jesus is the one from whom authority flows. But when Jesus prays, Jesus kneels. And I find that so fascinating. The typical Jewish posture for prayer at the time was this sort of uh, arms extended and sort of looking up to heaven. And if I prayed like this, you guys would find that a little bit self-exalting. You'd probably be a little uncomfortable. If we came up to lead us in prayer and I just... Like you're making that a little bit about yourself, aren't you? kind of seems like you're drawing a lot of attention to you. And I mentioned in our Bible class this morning that if you've ever knelt down to talk to a child... Uh, it's very hard to exert authority from a position of kneeling. There's something about it biologically that's inherently submissive. There's something about it that says, I'm, I'm vulnerable. And I love that Jesus modeled prayer and Jesus knelt. I could never say that our body positioning when we pray is something that I'm going to call a doctrinal teaching. I'm not going to enforce that on anybody. But there is something special about when we humble ourselves before God, kneeling in prayer. Obviously, when we're praying and we're out and about in our daily lives, I, I, in my own experience, sometimes standing or walking or even laying down fits the situation better. But do not miss the intentional humility in kneeling in prayer. And the text brings us to the heart of the prayer. That climactic moment, the phrase that probably sticks in our minds from this passage the phrase that would be remembered even by those disciples who later fell asleep. It is, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. One writer calls Jesus' prayer. He says, the prayer is made up of the condition, the petition, and the submission. He says, the condition is that, Father, if you are willing. That's the condition. The petition, the plea, is that the cup would be taken from him. Jesus says, take this cup. But then, of course, in the final conclusion, that submission, not my will but yours. Jesus begins with that same address that he gave his disciples when Jesus tells his disciples how to pray. Just a few weeks ago, well, it seems like a few weeks, really a few months ago, we studied the Sermon on the Mount. And we got to Matthew 6, we saw that Jesus very famously begins his prayer in Matthew 6, Our Father. It's the same address Jesus uses here. The disciples have the privilege of seeing Jesus under intense duress, under great pressure, really in the midst of an emotional crisis. And in the midst of all of this, how beautiful is it that Jesus looks up to the heavens and he says, Father, 
Jesus calls him Father. Sometimes when we're desperate in our prayers, for me it was pretty typical on about the night before an exam I had never studied before, some event that I had never prepared for. We get to the bargaining stage with God, right? God, if you can get me through the next 24 hours. God, if you will just suddenly impart into my brain all the knowledge I should have studied for in the last six months. And we'll give flattery, oh, great master and creator of the universe, if you will just gift me all of your wisdom overnight, please. Even under intense emotional duress, Jesus is not bargaining with God. Jesus has nobody to impress. Jesus has nothing to prove. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing. Jesus calls him simply Father and he invites the disciples, he invites us to do the same thing. Because there's comfort in being able to address him as Father. There's comfort in knowing that even though all the world is crazy and things are all messed up in our lives and we're at the point of death and even perhaps beyond, he is our Heavenly Father. And he adds to that this condition. Father, if you are willing. In Matthew and Mark, in the parallel passage, they have this added expression that says, all things are possible for you. Acknowledging the power of God. Acknowledging that whatever it is that God wills is always possible. It's going to be what it will be if it is God's will. But Jesus is asking, if God can, in the realm of his, of his great will and divine purpose, he says, if there's some way, could you make it possible for me to avoid the cross? He says, I know that you have a will and I know that you have a divine plan, but in your infinite wisdom and power and mercy, if there's some way, can you create a way for me to avoid the cross? I understand speaking about the will of God opens up a theological can of worms here. But the will of God is great, it's creative. We can fall and get out of the will of God, but then we repent. I mean, he can make a way for us to get back to him. He can create a new future for us when we surrender ourselves to him after falling away. But Jesus is desiring, first and foremost, for the Father's highest and best intentions, for his desire first. Jesus says, only... Only if you can grant me what I ask in the scope of what is your will do I want it to be done. I think a lot of times we pray the opposite. We pray, God, I want this and I hope that it is your will. Jesus says, no, 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 no. If this is possible to be done within the scope of your will, then I want it done. Otherwise, I don't. Jesus takes time for a, a response from God. Matthew and Mark again record the fact that Jesus prayed this three times. He, he prayed and he went out to his disciples and he went back and he prayed and he went out to his disciples and he went three times he came out and, and prayed the same prayer before God, pleading with God. He waited for an answer, for a response. He continued in prayer. Sometimes I think we come to God with a shopping list. God help these people, protect these people, be with these people. We sort of give God our, our building plans that we've all laid out, and we say, oh, and just as a formality, could you sign off on this, please? God, these are all the things I would like. Could you rubber stamp my request? I won't bother you anymore. It's really just, I mean, could you just sort of sign off on all these things that I would like? It's not how Jesus prays. He doesn't ask if the Father will permit it. He asks the Father if, he said, if you yourself want this, then I want it. And that's a huge difference. He says, only if it is your will, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours, be done. And that is what that commentator calls the petition, the plea. 
he asks that the cup be removed. The word, of course, for a cup is a drinking vessel or a container. But it's the same word that's used in the Old Testament lots of times to talk about someone's destiny, someone's future, or or what lies ahead, both positively and negatively. We see it used a lot for the, the wrath of God, that God's wrath was poured out. The cup was poured out. Jesus has a mission. He knows that. He has a destiny. As as a baby, of course, he did not know all things, but it says he learned them in Luke 2.52. And as a boy, he began to comprehend. In his teen years, he knew even more. As he prepared for his ministry, both before and after his baptism, and then in the desert, it says the Father revealed to him the full scope of just what this cup entailed. This cup that he would drink, the destiny to which he was called, the mission he was sent to accomplish. The scriptures spoke of the will of the Father, and Jesus learned that will through God's word. And he speaks here, pleading before God, but acknowledging that I only want this if it is your will. His ultimate prayer is he prays, not my will, but yours. He's saying, Father, your will is primary, my will is secondary. Jesus yields, he submits, he, he surrenders fully, he says, whatever you decide, God, I'm okay with. Jesus has a preference. He said, I w- if possible, I would like this cup to be removed. But at the same time of expressing that desire, he gives it up. He surrenders it. And that's where I think we can have that peace that we talked about. That it's okay to acknowledge before God, I, I want something, this is what I want, this is what I'm desiring, this is the, the, the thing that I would like to happen. But you know what, God, if it's your will, it's going to happen. If it's not, it's not going to happen. And that's okay. Our series title we started a couple weeks ago is called Looking for Direction. And it's about the Christian search to discern God's will. To, to understand what God might want for our lives. And in following Jesus' example... In prayer, this means expressing our desires and simultaneously surrendering them to God. I think sometimes we miss one of those two things. Sometimes we pray that that vague, open prayer, you know, just God, whatever you want, I want that to happen in my life. That's all right. It's not the full picture. And I think sometimes we're we're so caught up in our needs and our desires and our wants that we pray them, we forget to acknowledge whose will is really in charge here. And so following Jesus' example, he says, no, 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 tell God what you want. Speak to God. Honestly, give that up in prayer while acknowledging that it's, it's God's will that is supreme. Surrendering to God. There's peace in that. A few years ago, I might date myself with this, but Tim Tebow was one of the many Christian athletes that put Philippians 4.13, kind of center stage in American culture, a few years ago. And by a few, I mean, I guess like ten. But in sports, media, school classrooms, locker rooms. But here's the thing. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Doesn't really mean that God can give you the strength to go out and win your football game. And I'm sorry, I'll be the first to tell you I'm I'm guilty of praying that as many pregame prayer circles as anybody else, but it's not really what it means. We tend to think it's, God, with your strength, I can go out there and win this game. When what it really means is, God... With your strength, I can lose this game and still be at peace. What it really means is, God, with your strength, I can lose this game, get pounded in the dirt, someone cleat me in the face, break my arm in half, go home, and you know what? Lay my head on the pillow at night peacefully because I know it's at peace with your will. If that's what your will is and if that's what strengthens your kingdom, then I'm at peace with it. 
I think sometimes we get that twisted. It means, God, with your strength, I am completely surrendered to your will. Whatever that entails. I think that's real surrender. Luke 22, Jesus' prayer in the garden. It's one of the foundational prayers in the entire Bible. And at its core, is it a prayer of complete surrender? As we wrap up our lesson this morning, I want to revisit that last verse that we read from Luke 22. It says, when he woke from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray that so you will not fall into temptation. For hours, Jesus has been pouring his heart out in prayer. He's been burying his soul, but he comes back and he finds his disciples have fallen asleep. But he comes back, in Matthew and Mark, he comes back to them over and over anyway. I can't help but think that Jesus is looking for, for their support in this struggle. And maybe I'm overemphasizing the humanness of Jesus here, but I, I can't help but think that he wants their companionship. He wants their encouragement. He wants their, their partnership in this ministry that he's, he's called them to. And so he's saying, I am struggling. Stay awake. I'm pouring my heart out to God. Can you not stay awake with me? Jesus is looking for peace. And unfortunately, that, that, that kind of human comfort and peace he does not find in those closest to him because they have fallen asleep. Luke gives us the phrase, they were exhausted from sorrow. They wept and they grieved so much that they were exhausted by it. I remember as a kind of middle school, high school boy, it seemed almost a rite of passage for some of the girls in my friend group to at some point in their life fall asleep crying over some boy or event or small social thing that had happened in their lives. But as an adult, to fall asleep crying means a very much more profound, deeper kind of anguish, I think. Not to take anything away from some of the younger people we have here with us, but since they were exhausted from sorrow, it says, Jesus, we're, we're trying, we're, we're mourning with you, but I mean, if you ever spent a day maybe at a funeral service or with a family who's grieving, and when the day is over, you're, somehow you're tired, you're exhausted from sorrow. Under such stress that they're just existing in this state of exhaustion, they're suffering, they're grieving. They've heard their leader, their friend, agonizing just a few steps away, and they can sense his struggle. They're probably bewildered by it and confused by it because they see him as Jesus and, and all-powerful and perfect and everything. And so they're probably almost a little confused at his struggling, and they can't stay awake. As is our practice, we're going to close with an open invitation to those with requests and needs and confession or seeking discipleship that I mentioned earlier. But the question I have for the rest of the church this morning would be, why are you sleeping? Because I think sometimes our biggest problem as the church is we, we see the people who have a need. We know the people who are weeping, who are grieving. The people who have something. That, and I'm not just talking about people who come forward, but those who are struggling and are pouring their heart out and expressing their deepest grievances. Why are you Sleeping to that. We must remain spiritually awake. We must arise as Jesus told his disciples and, and pray that we avoid entering into temptation of becoming spiritually asleep.
We must pray when we are tempted. We must pray that we will be strengthened. And we must pray for the Father's will no matter the cost. If Jesus needed prayer to resist temptation, how much more do we? And so I pray that the rest of us, we will not be sleeping. That invitation I mentioned is for you this morning. Come while we stand and while we